Hey everybody, welcome to the Muckrake Podcast. I'm Jared Dave Sexton, here as always with my wonderful, beautiful co-host, Nick Houseman. Uh, we have a really special treat today. Uh, we have with us uh, for for this really uh, interesting topic of a, of a new project that he's carrying out. We have David Parsons, the host of Nostalgia Trap and the author of Dangerous Grounds, Anti-War Coffee Houses, and Military Descent in the Vietnam Era. But uh, I, we had to get him on because we need to talk about his new uh, Patreon-exclusive series, Nom TV. And we got him for a little bit of time, but I assume it's not even that long of a conversation. I assume you'll play some Credence. You'll probably <laughs> talk about some jungle battles, you know, talk about people throwing medals into reflecting pools and call it a day. Oh, not to mention troops getting spit on as they come home. I'm, I'm sorry if I went ahead and spoiled all of it. <laughs> yeah, those are those are the main topics we want to hit for sure. <laughs> well, can we also think no rain and so that it won't rain? Right. <laughs> Uh, Credence, yeah, Credence is going to be there, man. Uh, you you watched the first episode, um, and I put that in there for a reason, because I feel like there is a certain cliche soundtrack to the Vietnam War. Um, and I want to I play with some of that, because it feels like time to, to shift our understanding of this, of this era, for sure. And that's, that's my goal with the project. Yeah, and you know, I actually so I tuned in uh, for the first episode, and again, that's Nam TV uh, over with the Nostalgia Trap podcast. Uh, and I, I have to tell you, when I turned it on, and immediately Fortunate Son came over my AirPods, I, I laughed my ass off because I knew immediately that you weren't going to go down that road. But I also think that it's really fascinating. Um, I mean, we have come to think of this massive moment in history that has affected everything after it, this this savage moment of imperialism. And now we just have like these cultural touchstones that everybody has to put in with it, all of these story points, all of these mythologies that come together. Can you talk a little bit about what it is that you're trying to dismantle and what it is you're trying to, to put forth with this thing? Sure. Thank you. I mean, the, the, the culture stuff is really important in part because we don't teach the Vietnam War in, in our public school system very much. I mean, one of the most striking things that I learned while working on a, an exhibition at, at a museum in, in New York City, we're, we're figuring out how to take the material from the, from the museum exhibition and, and, and work it into curriculum for, for public schools. And, and so we, we ended up working with, you know, federal and, and state, uh, you know, education authorities to figure out how we were going to work this, this, uh, this Vietnam War material into their curriculum. And what we learned is that in the American public education system, uh, students encounter the Vietnam War twice in their 12 years of, of public education. So they, they see it once in seventh grade and they see it once in 11th grade. And what we learn talking to teachers is that realistically, most teachers don't get to it, um, in part because it's too late in the in the American history survey. They only get up to maybe like the 1950s if they're lucky. Um, and, and many teachers are intimidated by the history. They don't know how to communicate it. So that means that all the things you mentioned, this uh, sort of pop culture, the, including the Credence Clearwater Revival, is where most Americans encounter a narrative of the Vietnam War. Uh, and that be, be, means that there's been a, a shorthand developed that is you know, in movies and, and TV shows, but it, it's filtered into our politics as well. And I think that's maybe our most dangerous uh, uh, place where the Vietnam War and that history is distorted um, because it has been a major, a major engine 
um, for politicians to, you know, enact different directions for their um, for their ideologies. But it's always a dis distorted narrative. And if America, it's almost depending upon Americans not really remembering or understanding what really happened during this era. Um, and so, you know, I, it's an ambitious thing for me to say I'm trying to correct that. I'm really just trying to start a different conversation about the Vietnam War and 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 bring it to um, bring it to the public in a different way than it's been perhaps brought to them before. Well, I'm glad that you guys brought up Fortunate Son because and you kind of almost addressed the, the elephant in the room here, which is that Donald Trump used this song at every one of his rallies. And I think that's sort of what you're talking about just now about politicians using it. But I'm curious what your thoughts immediately with respect to Trump doing that in all of his background story and that song, what it means. What was your reaction to that? Well, I mean, I think it's it's continually uh, sort of fascinating the way that the Vietnam War keeps coming back in American life. Where I mean, we're still in this generation, partly because it's a baby boomer generation is still very much in control of our politics. So the men who are running for president are in their late or mid to late 70s. And they're 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 still fighting and still kind of kind of containing that era. But Trump, you know, he he was it, it was kind of interesting to see people say like um, about bone spurs, you know, with him and get like it was like sort of like the idea that he would be uh, uh, someone who got out of military service. In other words, there's there is a perception still uh, I think that people have that the, the the draft was unfair and that there were people who got out of it through nefarious reasons, you know, uh, basically a class thing. I just think it's amazing that, that we live in an era in the 21st century in which the Vietnam War is still present like that. And you mentioned Fortunate Son. That's the perfect example of, of sort of how distorted this history is, because Fortunate Son is literally about this subject of, you know, the person who gets out of, gets out of the draft because they're uh, of their class position. Uh, so Trump is that fortunate son. Um, and so for him to invoke that, that, that music is so, um, it's, it's wrong. And yet it's almost like the medium is the message. The, the song is patriotic to people, even though it's a, a really dark critique of, uh, of class and the way it functions as really, as related to the Vietnam war. Uh, I, I think what did, I don't know. If, I don't know if you guys remember. Did John Fogarty and Credence did they say anything about that? Were they upset that Trump used that song? I, I believe that they were, um, yeah. but I don't think it stopped them from using it. I think you, they'd have to have you know done a cease and desist. But uh, I believe that they were. But as you talk, I can confirm that. It's just like the Bruce Springsteen uh, "Born in the oh, USA," right? right? As an, yeah. another song, it's just like it's so weird because it's it, it, it when you hear it, when I hear that song, I hear now some sort of like patriotic right wing sort of thing. When you listen to the lyrics, it's like a really dark song about what the class and the Vietnam War. Um, so the fact that, the, you know, those two songs are maybe the most popular sort of versions of what I'm talking about. But it's everywhere oh. in terms of how this is this war is perceived. I mean, but it's like homophobes who love Queen. Right. In the right, same kind right. of weird ir irony in some way. Well, and I think that's that, yeah. that there's like one of those contradictions right and and before we start actually sort of dismantling the lens like for a second with the american sort of story and i think it's really interesting what you said uh about how we don't teach it we don't really scrutinize it we have this um it's actually been reduced down from everything from a few scenes in a jungle with some battling or at home, you see like the family unit being torn apart as junior mm. or little sister then like goes off to become a hippie. And then meanwhile, 
you have an entire generation that weirdly enough has started to see itself through the lenses of the characterizations of popular culture, Vietnam, you have a liberal class that still thinks of itself as hippie counterculture people, even as they became yuppies and move further right. Uh, you, you, of course, have Ronald Reagan, who built his entire political legacy on refashioning the Vietnam War with a conspiracy theory that we, we were kept from winning, right? And if only we would have been allowed to win, we could win. What is it that has about this war and around it and about this time period? Why is it that America can't look at it and really understand it? Because it seems both unintentional and drastically intentional. Yeah. I'm, I, why can't we come to terms with American imperialism? I mean, that's yeah. that's the, the question you're asking. And, and the Vietnam War, you know, at all this cultural work that's been done in the years since have been sort of. Uh, recalibrating our vision of the war to get away from that idea and to to turn it into a, a sort of, uh, you know, this this blank tragedy that happened almost to the point where if you talk about the details of it, you're doing a disservice to uh, the people who suffered and died in it. I mean, the, the, the basic fact for me in a lot of ways is that you talk about like the Reagan years, but it was happening um, under Nixon as well. Nixon sort of using the, the POWs in a very specific way to 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 put a American focus uh, on on the sort of suffering and the experience of American soldiers. And you mentioned all that jungle fighting and movies like, you know, Platoon. I mean, a lot, these movies are complex movies They're I think they're one part of a process, a national process of coming to terms of the war. But you can't get away from the fact that all of them uh, center American soldiers as the as as the sort of lens through which we understand everything. And if you're on at that level, uh, what you end up seeing is this, you know, remarkable empathy for young men caught, you know, in the, in the machinations of things they don't understand. And, and that ends up kind of like the machinations themselves get lost, right? We end up concentrating on the, 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 the experiences of, 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 of young people in the jungle fighting war, and that ends up being where we where we locate our our empathy. It's it's what you're asking is is really a bigger question, which is you know sort of how are we so focused on our on our own sort of national experience that we're unable to um, we're we're, un, we're unable to really feel the, the 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 big impact of what we've done. I mean, the Vietnam War killed millions of people it's a it's a it's a it's something that is is a dark part of our history but it's one that we don't really think about in in those terms we think generally in terms of what vietnam did to us uh and and that's something that is is almost patholo really pathological in a lot of ways um but at the same time it's that that's that's the nature of the distortion we're dealing with sure well well, real fast, I just want to uh, ask on that because I think that's the perfect end on and on something that you say um, in the first episode, which I've been chewing on for a few days. I really have because I thought it was profound. And I think a lot about what it is to look at a chain link fence. And you know how your eyes can only focus on one part of it and the other part is blurry. And if you look past it, that's blurry. You You brought up a really interesting point, which is in this first episode – when we start to consider the Vietnam War, we almost go ahead and always consider the Cold War 
that it's a theater in a much larger societal crusade between America and the dangers of communism. We can talk about domino theories all day long. But what we're actually missing is that in a lot of ways, the Cold War is sort of the foreground of imperial expansion and exploitation mm -hmm. of resources and cultures. And so in a way, we actually have to sort of um, completely rethink the way that we look at the world and the way things have, have played out. Yeah, um, and and that's, that's where every history of the Vietnam War starts is, well, you got to understand the Cold War. And it's almost, you know, and I experienced this in a lot of different in a lot of different theaters myself, and turning including the 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 the, the museum, museum exhibition in conversations with other historians, which is, well, you know, when you start at the Cold War, what you're what you're doing is often sort of absolving uh, the the people. Well, this was this is what they understood, and there's this feeling that like you mentioned the domino theory. Well, we were all operating on the domino theory, and how were we to know? And that's just you know, there's this constant uh, need to use the Cold War as a way of creating passive actors of history, almost mm -hmm. thinking like, well, they, they did what they had to do knowing what they thought they knew. But the domino theory is a good example. I mean, that wasn't even really an operative theory. It was something that Eisenhower threw out at a, at a press conference um, and, and coined to that term. But, it, you know, what we're really dealing with in the post-World War II era is the United States um, going to war for capitalism and going to going to war with the sense that it has rivals um, and that the Vietnam War happens in that context. Yes. Uh, but the Vietnam War is also, uh, you know, something that comes out of a much longer history of imperialism with the French that is just completely gone from the story. Uh, and that's why, you know, my my second episode, which I'm putting out this week, is about Ho Chi Minh in part because I just want to use the, the life of Ho Chi Minh, to, that, who who's born in 1890, to, to, to talk about this longer history and to talk about this story of a nation, Vietnam, that's been struggling for independence from foreign domination for centuries at this point, uh, and, and Ho Chi Minh entering into that story. By the time we get to the United States entering into the story in, in 1945, it's been decades and decades and decades of, of, of fighting between imperialists and liberation forces in Vietnam. So to say like the Cold War is the context um, just kind of erases that history and only gets to uh, the part where the United States can sort of say, well, we were fighting communists. Uh, and and that, that, that really erases the story of what was happening in, in Vietnam. Even when you get to, I'll just say this one last thing, even when you get, get to Ho Chi Minh, the question of whether or not, you know, what he was doing with communism is a big question because he was a nationalist who wanted independence for his country. Uh, you know, he wanted to you, work with America. Uncle well, Ho. yeah, yeah. I mean, in 1945, just this brief fact, you know, on September 2nd, 1945, after the United States de defeats Japan by dropping atomic bombs on two cities, uh, in, it's September 2nd, 1945 is when Ho Chi Minh and his group, the Viet Minh, declare... Vietnam independent from French and Japanese colonial authority. Uh, and they do so by reading a Declaration of Independence. And Ho Chi Minh reads a Declaration of Independence that begins, uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I mean, he literally quotes Thomas Jefferson. It sounds exactly like the U.S. Uh, Constitution, or sorry, Declaration of Independence. But it's also you know, being proofread by American 
agents of the Office of Strategic Services who are kind of the precursor of the CIA, they're working with Ho. They support his independence movement in part as a fulcrum against the Japanese. Um, but it's, 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 it, you know, the American intervention in Vietnam is a really complex one. And it isn't just about communism and capitalism. It is, it is about power. Um, and, and, you know, getting into those details and trying to tell that story is, is what I'm trying to do. Wow. There, there's so many things I, had to tr- I want to try and touch upon. I'm, <laughs> at least if I can figure out which to first to, to talk about. First of all, John Fogarty did send uh, cease and desist letters. Um, <laughs> nice. And in our normal society, like he just ignored them. Like we keep seeing all over the place. Just ignore the laws. It doesn't seem to matter. So that was one thing. Do, so he was upset. Do not underestimate John Fogarty's ability to say no and, and to assert himself in an argument. That, that, that's good old John. And he's a litigious guy, as I understand right. as well. Yeah, yeah. but it, it didn't seem to have an effect. They still play the song. Uh, it really is fascinating how many parallels we have in today's society to what the mistakes we've been making for the last 60, 70, 80 years. Domino theory can might as well be replaced with a trickle-down economic theory. All these things that are just made up uh, on the back of a napkin and, you know, sound good. And here and then and kill people. Right. And the 1619 project, the, the resistance to that is directly related to like what you've been talking about now as we educate our, our high schoolers or our, uh, you know, our students about the Vietnam War, which is kind of crazy to me um, that there is such a resistance to that. I wonder, though, having been around, you know, younger people now who are in college today, if there is a more receptive audience to you know, uh, presenting this country in a more realistic way versus the 70 and 80 year old heads who uh, keep railing against this. Is, is there is it more reception to that now? That, that's it's an interesting question. It's funny because I feel like there's this perception on the right that American colleges are just run uh, by just woke wokeness among professors and 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 students who are all just competing to see how progressive and radical they can be. I mean, that hasn't been my experience at all. I mean, teaching the Vietnam War specifically, you know, I find that most students don't really know that much about it um, and that they're eager to learn more about it. And they're ready to hear about the, 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 the there's no there isn't as much of a stigma talking about communism and capitalism. You know, those things don't seem like they're uh, that they, they are sort of weighted with the same Cold War attitudes among young people. That being said, you know, I, I, I taught at in New York City at a school that was that had a lot of immigrants from communist countries who uh, did have an inborn antagonism to communism. And so talking about the Vietnam War was always sort of tricky with that population as well. Um, you know, it's I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the 1619 project, because one of the things that I think emerges from, I, I hope emerges from the 1619 Project, is the notion that, you know, history is not just a set of facts that someone prints and there you go, it's, there's the correct version in the New York Times. It, we're, 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 it's, it's a contest and it's a contest over versions of history. I mean, part of what I'm doing with NOM TV is offering my version of the Vietnam War because this is the way I see it. Um, and, you know, all of that is supported by the evidence and and, and all the sorts of methodologies of history that we bring to it. But the idea that, that history is a conversation and one that we argue about is one that should be much more, I think, much more prominent in our in, in our in American culture, um, because I think there is the notion that there's a set of facts that we own each other with. Well, this is wrong. I proved it that that um, when the, the, the actual you know 
story of history is one we we argue about. It's a never ending discussion. That's always a bummer to tell people because they want, you know, in our sort of hot take social media culture, we want, you know, a, a 250, uh, 250 character. How many characters we get now? It's so, 280, right? Yeah, 280, 280 yeah. character breakdown. Um, and it's just, you know, I, I feel like that's the wrong way to go about figuring out what history is. Um, it's something that I think the 1619 project is a great sort of example of, of, of how to how to sort of communicate that there are different ways to tell the story and that the different ways we tell the story actually matters. I think it's a brilliant thing to sort of take 1619, the date, and say, what if what if we told it this way? How, what does that change? Uh, when, when we tell the story of America, if we told it from the story of not uh, when we signed the Declaration of Independence, but when the first, the first African slaves arrived, how does that change our perception of, of what this country is? I, I think it's useful and compelling, and obviously it's hit a lot of nerves. I mean, the right is going crazy over over the 1619 Project, and that tells you that they know that the, the stories matter. I mean, the right understands this. They're the ones that are, you know, they're, they're the ones that want to take over school boards and control curriculum and say, you can't talk about slavery, you can't talk about critical race theory, which is the latest hysteria. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if on that list of things that they don't want talked about, you know, the Vietnam War would be one of them, or they would want it talked about in a very specific way, which would be, Jared, what you mentioned at the beginning, right? Soldiers getting off the airplane and being spit upon uh, and that sort of thing, rather than a real reckoning with what happened in Vietnam. By the way, as a follow-up to that, because we mentioned the movies and how they're portrayed, I mean, the the, the most accurate movie that might have been done could have very well Rambo. been, I was going to say Return <laughs> of the Jedi, because the Ewoks <laughs> yeah. are the VC and we're cheering for them and they're going up against this evil empire and they have to be in the woods and they have to be have ingenuity, right? Like in my mind, I don't know if George Lucas meant to do that, but that always oh, spoke yeah, to me. Oh, uh, he yeah, did. All right, yeah. good. I think oh, yeah. so. And there's a book I have in my shelf back here, Tom Englehart. I think it's called the uh, the the end of victory culture. Um, but he he does a, an analysis of Star Wars and 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 Vietnam with with even even Yoda as a Ho Chi Minh like character. Uh, you know those films are definitely doing cultural work for sure. Um, and even our concept of empire, where the empire becomes the bad guys in the movie, um, and the plucky Americans are the ones yep. fighting empire. It's really fascinating how that reversal happens. Well, and not Wars. only that, but the Empire is stocked with British characters. Right. <laughs> because that's what the British do. That's not what we do. And and I think what you do, you were talking about in terms of history is really fascinating because you're not like people aren't pushing for history. They're pushing for orthodoxy. They're pushing for the mythology that helps whatever project. And Vietnam I think Vietnam is like a really hard thing for them to reckon with because there's multiple things that they like incoherencies and contradictions that they have to work with. Right. Because we're supposedly the most powerful nation in the world. How did we not break an insurrection? Right. In, in, in around the world. On top of that, um, you know, how were we obviously capable of doing some of these awful atrocities? Because even a cursory glance at Vietnam, you have to understand that there are atrocities. There are these things that we committed. And so as a result, you're exactly right. Any actual glance at this thing has to be shut down. It has to be shouted down. You have to make sure that nobody talks about it in curriculums because the moment that you actually start talking about this, you have to start talking about white supremacy. You have to start mm -hmm. talking about capitalism. You have to start talking about the fact that 
the the hegemonic military project that we're still engaging in. And and we were talking about this before we started recording. I don't know if you've had a chance to see this, David, but our good friend Daniel Ellsberg has just resurfaced again. <laughs> and, and of course, this is the person who released the Pentagon reports and uh, which showed that the United States had lied consistently about its operations in Vietnam. It knew it wasn't winning, that it completely, you know, uh, muddied the waters about this stuff. Now we're talking about the fact in the 1950s, they were more than ready to kill millions of people in China and Russia. And, you know, we all know how many democratic leaders and governments have been overthrown by this country. We want to believe this was like a blotch. This was like an aberration, right, that we need to like work with. But I think it's the orthodoxy of it that has to be dealt with. It has to it has to be reinforced or else this entire thing starts falling apart. Yeah. And what is the orthodoxy? Right. I mean, the orthodoxy is is a conservative narrative of, of yep. the Vietnam War and that that's what's become the, the standard narrative. I mean, I, to, to, to me, the the idea that I have students in my class who are 18 years old saying, no, that spitting thing really happened. Family members of mine told me personally. I mean, everyone's in other words, like there's been implanted memories. Um, but the, that that orthodoxy really benefits Vietnam really that narrative of Viet the Vietnam War really benefits conservatives because, you know, who are the bad guys? The bad guys are, uh, you know, liberal politicians uh, who didn't have the didn't have the balls to really use the the unleash the American military. Who are the bad guys? The media, you know, the media who who told the the wrong story and made America look bad. Who are the bad guys? Feminists and civil rights activists and anti-war protesters and. Uh, what we might call SJWs today. I mean, the, the, the narrative that they've constructed of the Vietnam War that's been repeated in, you know, in pop culture and everywhere else is one that, that very much benefits a conservative point of view. Um, and, and that's kind of uh, incredible. Uh, but but that, that's what we're left with, is the Vietnam War is almost owned by conservatives. Liberals don't really have a way of of talking about it except sort of lamenting the tragedy. I think that the liberal view on Vietnam is the is the wall, you know, the memorial wall, which is sort of let's sort of remember our soldiers. And that's about as far as we've, we've gone with it, with liberals. I mean, <clears throat> if you remember John Kerry running for president in 2004, you know, and, and, and showing up and look at what it was, uh, an, another uh, another attack from the right on his service in Vietnam, uh, which was incredible and they won that you know they won that that rhetorical battle so yeah it's a it's an it's an orthodoxy that definitely benefits the right as far as i'm concerned well i would go ahead and add to that just really quickly and i'm so glad you brought up john Kerry because i think he is a really good pivot point on that which is i think that the liberal orthodoxy about vietnam is that they did their part to end the war through the counterculture and through the anti-war demonstrations. And yes, it definitely played a role and it definitely turned the tide in terms of like public perception. But there's also another part to it, which is that the, the counterculture and the anti-war culture, it got bought up. It got turned into consumerist culture. And then you have somebody like a John Kerry, who of course comes back and starts to show, you know, this sort of remorse or reconsideration of Vietnam, but ends up becoming a politician who is right there with everybody else talking about wars, talking about American hegemony, but we need to take out the evil part of it, the technocratic mm -hmm. part of it, but the project still continues. So it's sort of a, you're right, the, the, the conservative orthodoxy seems like we were thwarted from using our power. 
And the liberal orthodoxy seems to be we did what we could and we ended it. And that was our generation's sort of moral victory, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, we recognized we recognized the mistake. And that's that's the word that liberals yeah. have settled on with Vietnam is that it was um, a mistake um, and something that, you know, got got sort of uh, uh, America got dragged into, yeah. you know, we got I mean, I would just watch the, the opening of the Ken Burns documentary as America got sucked into the miasma of Vietnam. There's always this sense that we're this unwilling figure that's drawn into this dark jungle by, you know, whatever force is over there. It's it's a, it's again, you know, a, there's there's a, a, a running away from agency, yeah. uh, you know, in, in the story. It's always that that Vietnam happened to us um, rather than Vietnam as the logical outgrowth of, uh, you know, a settler country <laughs> um, and, and one that had risen to become a, a, the, the most powerful military empire in the world. That, that's that's the story. But that's not the one we, we remember. And I, just, I need to comment on the fact that uh, it was fascinating that the John Kerry Swift boat thing would be successful and W gets to end Dan Rather's career early because of his record, which was you know so worse than anything imaginable. And in my memory would serve in 2004, there was still a stigma attached to somebody who would have dodged the draft or like dodged his, his military duty, kind of. And that must have been the moment where it paved the way for Trump to be able to just sort of shrug and say bone spurs versus it being a real negative on his campaign. Um, but I, I, I do want to ask this because, you know, in my conspiracy addled brain uh, that I have uh, about all these things in JFK assassination, um, it's interesting because obviously he was going to pull us out of Vietnam. It seems compelling that information if you you know want to you know believe those things. And so when you we were talking about how we got dragged in, it kind of feels like it was you know LBJ deciding I want to you know enrich the the industrial war complex and just you know get into it on our own volition. But here's the thing they don't teach in, in high school and in college when you study these things, which I thought was frustrating now knowing what I uncovered, I suppose is that the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and I thought maybe let's get into something very specific about this in terms of the, you know, instead of the, the overall general feeling, is, you know, you're taught that, uh, you know, there were these, uh, you know, an attack on a ship in the Gulf of Tonkin, and that was the predicate for war. We had to go to war just like we had, you know, what WMD evidence in Iraq and all these different things. How compelling is that evidence to you that it turns out that that was probably all faked? I, I think that it's I think it's more or less settled upon now that that an attack didn't happen, that there were, you know, there were a few guns went off between uh, uh, between North North Vietnamese gunships and American battleships there in the Gulf. Uh, but there were there were no hits and there were no damage. And it was, you know, it, it was the, the evidence was exaggerated. And it's interesting that you brought that up because, you know, during the museum exhibition curriculum, uh, exercises. We we did a we created a segment on Gul- the Gulf of Tonkin incident um, and the resolution that came out of it because the resolution that came out of it was pushed through Congress very quickly. It was uh, you know it had very little in terms of any t- types of uh, limits on American power strategy. It just said that Lyndon Johnson had the power to to send troops and wage war in Vietnam. Um, so the Gulf of Tonkin incident became a a, 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 a sort of set of activities for middle school and high school students to argue about. And it was exactly like, you know, it was sort of, what do you think about this? And what do you think of this evidence? Um, you know, and, and to me, it was, it's, 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 it's very close to thinking about WMDs and, 
the, the war in Iraq, the idea that there's always sort of like this this feeling that we're, we're, we might be, be being lied to or manipulated by this by this evidence. Um, either way, you know, the, by the time the American public is informed of the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964, this is really the moment that Americans are hearing about Vietnam for the first time. Right which is incredible because the United States has been at this point meddling heavily in Vietnamese affairs uh, for, for a very long time. But it's the Gulf Tonkin incident that actually allows Johnson to sort of take the, the, uh, take the, 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 the curtain um, over, over the policy and, and unveil it to the American people. Uh, I, don't I don't believe anything happened in the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, you know, I think that it's pretty, pretty clear that they drum that evidence up to, 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 to create a, a, a a justification for war. Yeah. Well, they, uh, I would I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about this. Um, you know, you I think over on Nostalgia Trap uh, have have been one of the uh, leading voices to talk about the problems within the academy, whether or not it's funding, whether or not mm. it's employment, the alienation of it. Uh, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if you've been paying attention to this, but there is a, a little bit of a rising voice of people who are coming out, and they're like, "I know everyone thinks that the academy is completely liberal, leftist, radical, revolutionary, when in fact it's been more or less co-opted by the wealthy and the powerful and the right wing, which has completely reduced it into a for-profit structure, but also." like you were saying, has been turned into a political battleground mm. where now all of a sudden, like, you're not even allowed to talk about race. You're not allowed to talk about privilege. You're not allowed to actually talk about real history. And and I think it's really wonderful that you're doing this non-TV project. But let's also talk about the fact that you're doing this as a public intellectual historian mm. through a podcast. <laughs> Can you talk about what well, it is to have to go through these sort of avenues and, and what it is to actually try and talk about history in this environment that we're in? Yeah, um, uh, the, the, the Gig Academy is what you're talking about. And we, we had a, uh, a, an episode last year about that notion that that you know, in, in the wider working economy, you know, Americans are, are, are t cobbling together a living from several different jobs, right? Uh, and that's, that's also true in academia as the, the system of, you know, tenured full-time uh, 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 jobs for, for professors sort of falls apart. There, there, you have this, this situation where you have hundreds of people applying for single jobs uh, it gets to the point where there there are so many indignities associated with pursuing that career that you know, I don't I don't really have any illusions about getting a full time job. I'm not going to get a full time tenure track job. I mean that's it, they don't exist first of all, and when they do, they're they're not for for people like me who are now almost a decade out of my PhD. So you know it's it's finding alternative places to teach, I, and and they're becoming smaller and smaller, and that's part of why I'm doing Nom TV is sort of a place where I can where I can share history because the reality is a, a lot of the teaching that I do now is not history. I haven't taught a class. I haven't taught a class on the Vietnam War since 2016, I would say. Um, just by virtue of the fact that history departments aren't offering classes on the Vietnam War and the you know, the history departments are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, which is part of uh, a, a larger problem within the discipline of history uh, and the humanities in general. So you know the things you're talking about, I would I would call the you know the neoliberalization of the university, 
in which the university becomes a place just like any other job. Um, and, and that means that I'm sort of this journeyman that works at a million different schools. Uh, it's weird because at one point I'm like, well, this sucks because I don't have a full-time position. I never know how many you know, classes I'm going to be teaching, if at all. Uh, and the other part of me is like, what if I didn't have any job, any classes? Because you know, that, that's often threatened as well. Um, I was, I, I mean, just today, I just found out just before we got on the, the phone, I just, uh, I just found out I, I won't be teaching a podcast course in the fall because the school has, you know, cut it out of the budget. Um, so that means, you know, I'm out whatever amount of money I was going to get paid for that class. Uh, but also, you know, I'm, it's, it means I, I wonder like when that stuff comes back, but you, because the, the story of austerity seems to be like taking more and rarely ever building back. You know, there seems to be like the, the thinner it gets, the, the, the thinner it's going to be. Um, well, and it seems, so yeah. it, well, just to put a bow on that and to bring it back to the conversation about what you're doing with NOM TV, I think it's really important for people who aren't in the academy to understand that the way that it has shifted, particularly as it's been co-opted by right-wing forces and also neoliberal forces, let's be honest, like one mm -hmm. and the same, We've gotten to the point where people are being trained to be managers of the system and the, the stuff that makes you question what the system is or the way that we've arrived at this point is being cut out. The things that, lead, you know, like, for instance, the Vietnam War, one of the reasons that we don't look at it as much is because to actually consider, like you're doing, what it was, why it happened and the ramifications. Yeah. You have to actually consider who you are in the world and what it means to be an American and what America has been and what it's done. And that's not exactly what people are looking for anymore, right? It's more job training and getting pushed through. Yeah, and and that th what you're talking about is almost like specialized romantic experience yep. that might be reserved only for people with a lot of money that are able yep. to go to small liberal arts colleges yep. and, and, and do that sort of romantic education. I mean, I, I, I think of that as a nostalgia trap as well as a sort of like the, the, the sort of, um, the university as this, this, this place where people are just, are just sort of reading and thinking mm -hmm. and talking that, that experience has gone away. Um, and you're right. I mean, it's turned into a, a, a place where you're, you're sort of expected to think about everything in terms of its, uh, its, 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 its value as a job skill. Uh, and that's part of how history has tried to survive this. And I think it's been a mistake in a lot of ways. Um, the idea that, well, we can pitch history, history classes as good for students that are trying to get jobs in finance right. because it's going to teach them how to analyze and how to reach. In other words, like our goal is not to be thinking critically about imperialism and the Vietnam War and coming to terms with our history. That's just a, that's just a very romantic notion that's totally gone from the university now. It's it's sort of like what can what are how are these units going to be tradable on a job market? Um, and you can really feel that from students. I mean, but maybe the the the, the so it's because I was teaching at a school for a long time in New York, Baruch College, that's a business-oriented school. My students that were in my history classes, they, they, they weren't – the ones that were taken up by the romantic ideas, the ones that were taken up and compelled by the things I was talking about and thought, wow, I, I never knew this about the Vietnam War. I never knew this about the civil rights movement. I, I want to learn more, and I want to major in history. But I asked my dad about it, and he said, no way. 
because a history major is going nowhere in terms of getting jobs. At least that's the perception. Whether the data bears that out is a totally separate conversation. But there is the perception that education is for jobs. That's why you get uh, uh, that's why you get an education and all this stuff about going to school. And I mean, look how you talk about like the stereotypes in pop culture, but the stereotype of like someone who studies philosophy or studies literature, you know, that's like shit upon in our culture. It's just like that's like you're not you're not doing anything. You're not helping anybody. It's actually immensely privileged to go sit and read the great Gatsby somewhere and think about what it means. We have that doesn't have any value to anybody. And so when we now have a university that's entirely geared towards producing marketable, skilled students into into a job market, that that romantic notion is is gone. Well, and then suddenly you start questioning, how did we lose the Vietnam War and how could we win another Vietnam War? Right. right? Because right. all of a sudden it becomes about applicability. Sure. Yeah. Well, that historical knowledge is is gone. I mean, it really is. I mean, most students, I, I think, like I said, they don't really encounter this this stuff at all um, beyond the, the the pop culture. And I don't even know. I mean, how many Zoomers are watching Platoon? You know what I mean? I mean, the the Vietnam War doesn't seem like the Vietnam War doesn't seem like it's really present in the culture. At the same time, it does. If that makes sense, it almost feels like it's soaked into us. And that orthodoxy that you're describing, you know, that, 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 you know, that certain point of view packaged idea of what happened, soldiers were spit on, there was a tragic thing, you know, a lot of people died, there was an awful bunch of, you know, anti-war people who were very unpatriotic. That story is just, that, you say orthodoxy, it's, it's more than that to me, it's, it's just historical truth for most Americans. That's well, incredibly disturbing. Because well, I feel like the same thing will happen with Iraq and everything else. Well, I, I wanted to ask your uh, opinion of, you know, the, there is a romanticization of the counterculture and how they, they changed the world and all of the rallies and all the marches had an effect. Um, you know, if, if you look at it, what happened now, what, what, how like Black Lives Matter is now being portrayed and where we've come as a country and what we're still dealing with, I, I kind of wonder if if any of it really did matter. What at the time even yeah. was there any appreciable influence from all the unrest that actually got anywhere closer to what they were trying to achieve at the time in the '60s, much less where we are now? That's a really great question. I mean, I think on on the one hand, you're right. There is a there is a tendency from like you know the people who control pop culture, the the boomer generation, to sort of overstate we changed the world kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, I think about the absence of an anti-war movement in the United States right now. And I think about the absence of a sort of sense of internationalism on the left. And it's pretty striking considering how much, you know, there were le identifiable left leftist, not liberals, but leftist figures that would have been on TV being interviewed. Um, and the fact that if you read I mean, read like Rick Perlstein's uh, Nixon Land is a good popular history, a good example of, 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 of a detailed history of Nixon's years as president. He was scared as shit about the about the anti-war movement and, and treated it as, a, as, a, as if it were a real constituency that he had to answer to. Um, so on the one hand, I, I I'm totally sympathetic to the conversation of like, what did you guys really do? You know, you stomped around and, 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 and people were killed in Vietnam basically until the United States uh, decided they were done with it and, and got out. And the anti-war movement had no impact. I'm, I'm you know, I can, part of me can, can see it that way. Um, but part of me, like, especially comparing it to 
the, 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 the absence of, of an anti-war movement today, it's sort of striking to see how, uh, how much power was considering the fact that there were millions of people on the street. The October moratorium in 1969 um, was a big deal, and that's the reason why Nixon created the idea of the silent majority. A lot of people think that he, uh, that he created that, word, that term and used that term to win the, the presidency in 1968, but he did not use the term silent majority until October 69. Uh, and that speech was, was because the moratorium, which was the largest anti-war demonstration in American history and human history, it, it brought out millions of Americans that were not just scruffy hippies, uh, doctors, nurses, lawyers, the middle class. It was you know, sort of like the, the mainstream of America was against the war. And that made Nixon panic because he felt like if he had to uh, he had to segregate the anti-war movement into this stereotype of an anti-American sicko weirdo uh, when it was really the mainstream that was coming out against the war. The silent majority was his answer. It was his way of constructing a public that could um, that could sort of be organized to and, and geared towards Nixon's point of view on the war. So all that to me just means that the anti-war sentiment, movement, whatever was happening, was something that was part of the, the, the way that even very powerful people were thinking about the, the limits and, and possibilities of what they could do, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and you know, Nick, Nick and I talk a lot about uh, the, the current right wing, and one of the dangers, of course, is that they're, they're not even trying to conceal what they're doing anymore. It's when the mask slips you know, and like with the Vietnam War, again, you have like this idea of this noble fight against communism. You can say that you're doing this and this is why you're going over there and killing all of these people. Um, but I actually uh, something I heard the other day it was a really good interview you did with Danny Besner. And he brought up the term um, and, and I'm going to get him on the podcast because I want to talk about this for like an hour, which was imperial realism. And this idea that in the past, America used to hide it's hegemonic project behind this veneer of stars and stripes and liberty and equality. But I actually think that this country is kind of rotted enough to the point mm. where like people are just like, yeah, we're doing that for the money and the profit and the power mm. and the lack of the anti-war left. And you've talked about this, the, the lack of an anti-war left, the lack of an international left. Now that we are, I guess, on cruise control to a second cold war with China. And the possible and, and, and by the way, like it's not an ideological conflict. It's the fact that China is replacing us as the main economy in the world and possibly as the superpower. If you look at all of those sort of factors blended in together, I mean, I, I, I know the answer is bleak. But what do you what, what do you see all that adding up to without even the veneer of this? Well, I mean, it, it's interesting about the idea of the right taking its mask off. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm. I'm I, Everything, everything you're talking about is making me think about, um, you know, QAnon and, and, and the, 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 the sort of conspiracy theories. I, I, you know, I, I wonder, like, wh where does Vietnam fit into that right wing? You know, this sort of like rising, the, you know, the, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens um, and that sort of rabid right wing that, that, that January 6th. I, I'm really curious what the attitude towards the Vietnam War is among that group of people. Um, I mean, what, what do you think? Well, I, I mean, no I, idea. I, the, the really frightening thing there, I think, is like how quickly they weaponized the, the pandemic, 
how mm. quickly right. it's into yeah. we've been under attack. Um, and and I think Marjorie Taylor Greene, we talk about this all the time, is she's an incredible bellwether. Like she, her, her language, it's all about terrorists. It's all about armies. It's all about, you know, uh, traitors, all of that. And so I think when that mask slips, I think it's not even going to be an apology for the possible violence that they could carry out. Like, I don't even think it's going to have the beginnings of a veneer. Yeah. And that's why I think I brought her up and, and Q is because there's many different ways to think about Q went on and, and whatever right wing fascist movement is, is rising in America right now. But uh, to me, the, it's 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 uh, anti communism is an organizing principle there, and there is a through line from uh, you know your Barry Goldwaters uh, of the 1960s and the libertarian, especially the libertarian stream in American life, all the way to um, to, to 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 today. And so, like in terms of the idea that we could weaponize anti communism. And 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 move into a new Cold War with China on the same you know on the same terms um, as as the Cold War we fought before you know with this weird interregnum where the counterculture came in and sort of said hey you know the world is something else there's something extraordinary about that um, it means that it means that the you know whatever tensions whatever political tensions and social cultural tensions were at play in the Cold War um, from the 1940s into the 1990s. Are, are still with us and and that's and they're soaked in in really distorted ways you know that they're the language that is now being used the rhetoric from the right ted cruz yesterday on twitter talking about communism talking about the soviet union talking about how much i hate communism and i want them all to die i mean to me it's like whoa like take i mean you call that taking the mask off you call that like revealing your psychology but either way, there, there is it means that the, the word communism and socialism, those words still are very, very meaningful words for reactionaries. Um, and, and to me, that that that, mean, that means that that world is still is still operative. And, and that puts NOM TV, I guess, in the context of trying to intervene on that uh, on that part of the politics, because the distortion of the Vietnam War is a big engine of that of that picture of communism. Um, but it's, it's funny because the I would have thought that the right would have had a much more stronger reaction to the notion of Russia interfering with our elections in 2016 because of that, you know, deep seated in their amygdala, whatever, you know, brain about uh, Russia and, and the Soviet Union did not have an effect at all. Like they didn't want to acknowledge it or even consider that. Uh, that yeah, was always very striking. They're not right. communist at all. Anymore. They're okay. Russians. They're white identity Russians. So that's OK. <laughs> Um, But I also wonder if, you know, like the other thing we would see in in the movies and the the, uh, pop culture uh, when we referenced hippies or people who from the 60s, it was like a badge of honor that they got arrested when they were protesting. Right. Mm. It wasn't necessarily a bad thing, whatever. But they 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 were they were they were in the fight and they got arrested. And I wonder if the January 6th insurrectionists we're tapping into that as well. We are just continuing this line of people from the 60s who were protesting and we were just like, you know, every day in front of the yeah. White House, right? I, I think that was almost every day for the entire 60s or from 66 on, right? They had a protest in front of the White House. Right. So they were probably, you know, I think that maybe they were trying to ch- uh, to channel that and that was sort of what they thought they were doing. Yeah, I, I think the right has for a long time taken a lot of the tools of the left and, and the civil rights movement and, and, and the outrage and the demonstrations and the boycotts. I mean, it's interesting because they, they lament and they sort of hate, actively hate 
uh, the fact that there was such activism um, in the 60s. And yet the conservatives have 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 um, had a lot of success because they've been activists, um, arguably much more success than the left in the last several decades because they've been they've become active. And you talk about like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, she's sort of emblematic of the of, of the, the sort of white woman active conservative figure who you know emerges in the 70s and 80s and have become you know you look at like Sarah Palin and figures like that there there is there is an archetype of that suburban uh, conservative woman who's gained a lot of power through being an activist uh, so when you talk about the capital being like you know looking like some sort of Woodstock uh, you know, 60s style demonstration. It is interesting because it did look like, I mean, you, you see like the Q shaman. So part of you could be like, well, is this the 60s? Is this the counterculture? These look like hippies. Um, and the, the counterculture having a tentacles in the right wing is, I think, something we're, we're coming to terms with as well, which is that the counterculture isn't necessarily something we should associate with the left. Uh, that, you know, a lot of people are into sex, drugs and rock and roll that are that are fascists uh and, and that part of it is something we got to unpack as well it's well, not, not just all it's not all the beatles man well <laughs> and not to mention that a large swath of the counterculture then became silicon valley yeah creating not just internet spaces where people could go but also then marketing to them uh giving them their own realities like untethered from everything that is is real and then on top of it radicalizing them through algorithms and like continually feeding them whatever ideology that they wanted to look at and they wanted to buy but not anti-capitalist ideology right, right. i mean it's interesting because it's it, we get to the point where we're now talking about algorithms you know and facebook and youtube and things like that and it's just like why is it why is it all fascist stuff why is it that like i look at a uh, a, a beard grooming video, uh, and then and then and the next video I'm suggested is uh, is all about how the Holocaust was fake. You know, why why should that be? Um, you know, it's the Silicon Valley came to power in part based entirely on the those utopian ideas that that the the computers were going to somehow embody uh, connection and community and progressive values and even i mean apple when i was a kid the the, the vision of apple was that, that a bunch of hippies made computers um and and these computers are going to change the world and make it better no one makes that argument anymore i mean that, that that's sort of like um i don't know it, it's the the technology element is is really really important because the, the the technology became the language through which a lot of the values of the 60s played out um, into capitalism, and what you're really talking about is, is 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 those values becoming the way that capitalism refreshed itself in the in the '60s era. I mean, this is like the Thomas Frank conquest of cool, but also uh, you know Mad Men. The counterculture gave capitalism a new language to to sell its products and to develop a a, a way of interacting with the public. But it certainly didn't um, bring left wing values out. Uh, it seems like that those those things aren't aren't part of what Silicon Valley is about at all. I mean, it's capitalism. Yeah. And by the way, I have to point out that the brightest young men like McNamara, they would go from, <laughs> you know, the automobile companies and then figure out how many bombs it was needed to break a people's spirit. I mean, it's right. the same through line of the technocrats all yeah, the time. I, well, I think we need to face it. Uh, capitalism turns everything into shit. Right. That's <laughs> what it does. 
<laughs> you know, and whatever That's version. One way shit. of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm so glad you took it. You brought up McNamara, who was the defense secretary at the time, and it was in charge of uh, you know a lot of the uh, you know the, the strategy I would imagine of the Vietnam War to some degree, uh, along with uh, our friends like Westmoreland. So I'm kind of curious. Do you like uh, just to take a little bit of a left turn? Do you have a take on strategically and tactically what why we ended up losing Vietnam? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, in fact, I was just reading. Um, uh, re- reading uh, uh, a piece from from uh, one of the, the military leaders in Vietnam, the, the most, one of those famous le- military leaders of the 20th century. Uh, his name is Jop, uh, Ho, Ho's right hand man, and he he was asked um, in in Christian Appy's book. It's right here, Patriots. I was just reading an interview with him in in, in the 2000s. I mean, he lived to be wow. uh, I think nearly 100 years old. He says, people always ask me, how did the how did the Vietnamese defeat the United States? How did this happen? And they always think about it in terms of like, well, we had a smarter strategy. You know, we knew the politics and things like that. He said, and, and what he says is, but the real answer is a lot is a lot simpler. The real answer of why Vietnam defeated the United States is that we would rather die than live in slavery. Uh, and that you were you could have killed generations of us. And in fact, colon, colonizers did. Um, and we were all, and the United States never understood that. The United States felt that they could keep killing Vietnamese, and at a certain point, the body count would add up, and 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 the Vietnamese would give in. But there was no way that was ever going to happen. Um, so there's that part of it. But in terms of the strategic part, I mean, I, that's something I can't wait to get into on Nam TV. In terms of, you know, how did these, how did these battles happen? What was the U.S. policy? Um, how did they fight this war? Because, you know, it is it is really compelling, exciting, incredible stuff. I mean, Dien Bien Phu, which is the maybe a shorter answer to your to your, to your question. How did the United how did how did the Vietnamese defeat the French? Um, you know, they they drew them into a, a battle um, at one location, Dien Bien Phu, um, this a military installation in which they all the French sort of um, got led there to station there. And while the French are sort of collecting their forces in Vietnam at Dien Bien Phu, the Vietnamese have been doing this for years. They've been stealing uh, uh, pieces of, of weaponry, and they've been moving it under cover of darkness in the middle of the night with ropes through mountains over hundreds of miles, reassembling these weapons and covering them in the jungle for years so that when the Battle of Dien Bien Phu finally uh, the first shots are fired, those tarps are unleashed, and the Vietnamese have anti-aircraft guns, and they're shooting down French bombers from the sky. The, the French had no conception that these weapons existed, that this, were, that this was their capabilities. Um, the French commander committed suicide within the first six hours of the battle because of the, the massive failure that this was. Um, but part of that failure has always been understood to be in, in part, uh, uh, that failure was created by the assumptions of white supremacy that Asian people would never be able to take down a, a, a massive uh, Western imperial army. Uh, and they did so uh, in a matter of days. And it's one of the most stunning events of the 20th century. It's, it's like the ultimate underdog story. I actually start my, the new episode of Nam T- TV with the Eminem Lose Yourself song just because I wanted to get people amped up to understand how fucking crazy it is that like rural colonized people 
were able to um, take the initiative in this way and and figure out a way to um, to, to, to to kick the French out um, when they were massively outgunned. I mean, there was it seemed like there would be no possibility. So it's in 1954 that Dien Bien Phu happens. That's when the United States comes in, and the United, and and the Vietnamese are going to continue that that style, and it's it's that style that wins wins them the war. But it's a massive price. I mean, the Vietnamese paid they they paid a price in millions of lives to gain the liberation of their country. Um, so it's I mean it's an it's an ugly story, but it's a really intense one. And when you look at it from the Vietnamese side, you sort of get why it's so insane. Uh, and so incredible. Um, but like we, we always say, I mean, we're always looking at it from the American side, which is a very, very distorted and almost like impossible to understand story. All right. David Parsons, host of Nostalgia Trap, one of the best podcasts in the world, dare I say. Oh, and, thank you. And, and the host of the wonderful new series, Nom TV. How many episodes are we doing? What are, what are we thinking? Uh, I'm going to do it all summer. Uh, I want to see where I can get. My goal is to sort of tell the outlines of the of the story um, and get through 1975, get through the whole story of of, of American involvement of the war, um, and then maybe take a break and do another another season at the end of the year. So uh, you can expect at least 12 episodes of the of this first run. Um, but I'm, uh, like I said, there I feel like there are infinite different um, sort of paths that we can go down. But I, I want to make sure that I, I get a, a, a clear narrative um, in the beginning. So that's what we're going to do this summer. Well, I, for one, am incredibly excited to have this to listen to all summer. And again, that is Nom TV with David Parsons of Nostalgia Trap. Uh, David, where can the good people find you? Nostalgiatrap.com. Pretty easy. There you go. All right. Thank well, thank you. you so much for your time and for the work, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right, everybody, that was our exclusive interview with David Parsons of Nostalgia Trap and now Nom TV. Uh, Nick, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I find it really fascinating to start with Vietnam and be able to work your way out to the edges, understand American history, and, and really reconsider even modern politics because of this war that took place, what, 50 years ago now. Oh, you know what it's like? Remember the old switchboards where they had all the different plugs and you had to connect? That's almost what I'm picturing because there's so many parallels. And yeah. you know what? We might have to do a special, you know, 30-minute like what we did for uh, Carter on that, on like the parallels yeah. between like Vietnam and uh, the Gulf War or Vietnam and now something because it's it, we haven't learned. We're not, we're not learning any of these lessons. And for anybody to stand there credibly and tell us about, you know, trickle-down economics when we know how bad like, you know, um, the, the domino theory was the fallacy of that. Like it's just the, the fact that people are still credible in this day and age with that kind of shit, it just boggles my mind. You know, for a moment when we were talking with uh, with David, I almost asked, like, what if we hadn't gone to Vietnam? But we were we were going to go to Vietnam like that. that that's the honest to God truth. And, and listen, you, you, you love the JFK angle. Uh, you, you can say that there were extraordinary measures that got us in Vietnam. That's totally fine. But it is almost one of those things where it's like water going downhill. It was always going to happen because of how America is, how the capitalistic system works, how the American hegemonic project was taking place, we were always going to end up in this technocratic, uh, neo-colonial place of, of, of pulling out this sort of violence. It was just really, really disgustingly inevitable. Right. And it's almost as if, you know, we just didn't really know our true history. Yeah, it's right? almost like that. 
it's 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 almost like that and almost like you're doomed to repeat it over and over again no matter what if you don't learn from it almost it's almost like that all right everybody that's going to be our show for the day uh i really enjoyed it i hope you did as well uh we're going to come back again at the end of the week with our regular weekender which is our patreon exclusive show i've been seeing people listening to the preview i assume you're enjoying it you should join our you should join our patreon over at patreon.com slash podcast. Not only are you going to get access to the full Weekender episode, which, by the way, spoiler, I think our Weekenders are some of our best episodes. For sure. I mean, last time we argued about when you're supposed to take a shower. And it, it, it turns out this is something that people like to argue about. Oh, it sparked a Discord discussion it's, for sure. It sparked a Discord discussion. You you become part of the community where you can interact with other listeners. You get uh, exclusive content. So, yeah, we'll be back later this week with our regular Weekender episode. That'll come out on Friday. Uh, in the meantime, if you need Nick, you can find me at Can You Hear Me SMH. You can find me at JY Saxton. Stay safe. Stay safe.